Tuesday, everybody. It's a super Tuesday in the political world, but it is a normal Tuesday in the baseball world. But we'll consider it a super Tuesday because we have on our guest today is Brett Valentini. He is the managing editor of Southside Sox and the editor-in-chief of the Southside Hit Pen. Brett, how are you doing today? What's going on? Oh, excellent. Very excited to talk some Chicago White Sox baseball. I would have to say that this is probably the most excited that the White Sox coverage team or the fan base has been about the White Sox in quite a long time. Fair to say or no? It's been a really long decade. There's no doubt about that. Uh, It's been a real challenge as a fan. This is a very new thing. I'm sure we're not the only fan base that's gone through the rebuilding um, uh, rebuilding and re-rebuilding and then restocking and all of the nonsense that is pitched to us as fans. It basically says, be patient, keep coming, but we're not there yet. So yeah, the excitement level is, I mean, it's not quite tipping off the charts, but uh, it's definitely in another dimension. We're in a new decade, and so it's really a different level of fan enthusiasm going into 2020. I have to say that from a lineup standpoint, this is as formidable a lineup as I've seen the White Sox have since probably 2006 when they picked up Tomey. I mean, they signed Grandal, who's a perennial all-star. They bring aboard somebody like a Nomar Mazzara, who he's a minus defensive outfielder, but certainly somebody that at guaranteed rate field is going to have the potential to hit 25 to 30 homers. You bring in Encarnacion, who's a stud power hitter in his own right, You're bringing back guys like Tim Anderson, who was the, heck, he was the AL batting champion last year. And then you add to the rotation with somebody like a Dallas Keuchel. You bring on Steve Ciszek from the north side, who's going to help solidify the back end of that bullpen. For you, what was the biggest impactful signing of this offseason? Well, right off the bat, it was Grandal. Uh, A, A, because of the player, because he's going to bring so much to the White Sox offensively, defensively handling a young pitching staff. But the fact that the manner in which they did it so quickly, Hans struck when we, you know, we still had like, I don't know, Thanksgiving turkey in our mouths or something. You know, he just shocked us with the speed and the precision with it, which is not exactly the way the White Sox operate. You can only look one offseason previous where they hemmed and hawed with Bryce Harper, and then they sort of blew Manny Machado at the very last minute, apparently. Uh, So the fact, it's almost the method, it really indicated to fans, hey, this is going to be a different offseason, and they could not have targeted a more appropriate player to get onto the roster because he's a guy who's going to touch everything. He's going to get on base because the White Sox have had a definite problem with that. Uh, He's obviously going to handle pitchers and frame in a way that we haven't seen a White Sox catcher ever do, especially when you combine it with the offense he's going to bring, because he's got power, and again, he gets on base. So that, to me, was a key, and it was a real tipping point for the offseason, because even though there were still a couple guys that the White Sox fell short on, uh, it really was the first domino in leaning toward, gosh, I mean, truly... Uh, strengthening this team in several different uh, areas, uh, many of the players which you you just mentioned. I think one guy that a lot of people are excited about is a returner, and that's Jose Abreu. He was one of the few guys that accepted the qualifying offer initially when they made the initial qualifying offers. I believe it was him and Jake Odorizzi from the Twins, and then they signed Abreu to an extension. Like, in this 
gradual next stage of this rebuild, which is going to see these guys go into more of a competitive mode, how important is it to keep big number 79 on the south side for the next few years? And wasn't, I mean, for all the moves that were met with plaudits, and most of them were, Abreu was one that was met with a little bit more of a lukewarm reaction. I can understand fans not necessarily wanting to commit to a guy who has certainly seen um, some holes in his game, even though he had incredible power numbers last year. Uh, his play against right-handers, uh, you know, was, wasn't terribly strong. He eats lefties alive. But I think you allude to the fact that he's really the unofficial captain of the team. He's the guy who took Aloy Jimenez under his wing when Aloy signed his big extension uh, contract prior to ever playing a single major league game. He's been mentoring him. He continues to do that. I mean, these are things that don't show up necessarily in your war or maybe even in uh, literal wins and losses, but it's the stuff that's necessary for a team. So his importance to the club, though on the field, he's not going to be the best player. I don't know if there's been a single season he's necessarily been the best player offensively and defensively in his White Sox career, but he shows up. He's consistent, and it's that off-field stuff that's so important that on this team, this young team, this team with a lot of Latin players, uh, is going to prove to be uh, just an immeasurable worth. We're here talking with Brett Valentini, the editor-in-chief of the Southside Hit Pen and the managing editor of the Southside Sox. Yoan Moncada switched from being a second baseman to a third baseman, and I feel like that really impacted his offensive numbers last season. He had career bests in batting average, on-base percentage, he had an OPS of 915, he had 79 RBI, career-high 25 homers, and that was in only 132 games because I believe he had a stretch in the middle of the season where he missed some time. I mean, do you think the defensive switch somewhat helped Moncada come into his own uh, as an offensive player? And not to come across as too cranky old school, I do think that he would have settled down at second base. The notion that the defense was connected to offensive play when really he was met with, you know, they threw everything at him in that first year. Plus, he did not get the benefit of a fair strike zone in the least. The studies done indicate that there was something in the neighborhood. This is going to sound crazy, but I think it's legit. Like it was like 50. I mean, he had what? He ended up with close to or right around 220 strikeouts, which is nuts. But I believe... I think upwards of 70 of those were called thirds that were outside of the zone. So he really did not benefit from having any sort of rep that he would have got any sort of respect from umpires. But at the same time, uh, coincidence or not, he moved to third, played a very, very reputable third base, uh, probably above average by maybe most metrics, certainly at least an average third base. And he offensively, uh, more importantly from the right side, where he really struggled the previous year, uh, he's now a, uh, a switch hitter who is a weapon from both sides of the plate. And truly, you know, Luis Robert Pending, he's a rookie, uh, I think very clearly sort of the understated MVP of this team. And he's going to be the understated MVP of this team probably for years to come. You mentioned Luis Robert, and you mentioned in our prior answer about Jose Abreu how big of an influence he was on a guy like Eloy Jimenez who signs a big contract without ever playing a major league game. That was the same thing with Luis Robert this offseason. What are the expectations on him being the main defensive guy in an outfield that defensively between Jimenez and Mazzara is below average? Well, 
I don't know if you've had a chance to catch it. There was a one of our writers, uh, Sean Williams, is down in uh, Phoenix, and he's you know he's tweeted out the games he gets to. He tweets out a video. He tweeted out a video where Luis Robert is not even. It's a pretty wide angle shot he took. He's not even when the when the when the pitch is delivered. He's not even in, in frame. He comes all the way across the field, basically into Aloy Jimenez's is you know like straightaway left to make a catch. This is a guy who I think the one thing we don't have to worry about in Chicago is his defense. He's a phenomenal defender, got a terrific arm. He does extraordinary things in the field. And it's not to say that defense can't slump, because of course it can. It's a little harder, I think, for it to slump. And certainly a guy like Robert, who's got some holes in his swing, is going to be challenged by off-speed stuff this season. Uh, He's going to have some offensive struggles. I think that's a given. Uh, Defensively, I think is something that, though, I think as you pointed out, with the bookends he has, it's going to be a challenge. He may be one of the first guys. I think Johnny Mostel, a very old White Sox player uh, from the 20s, I believe one time as a center fielder caught a foul fly ball in a spring training game, I believe. Luis Robert may be forced to do that maybe in a regular season game this year because, yes, the corners are not very strong defensively, so you need a Luis Robert out there. And when Luis is maybe struggling and maybe a little banged up with injury, Adam Engel's another guy who can cover a lot of territory in center. So hopefully that's going to mitigate the fact that the White Sox have committed to Aloy Jimenez, a guy who's not too strong defensively, and then traded for a guy, Nomar Mazzara, who is certainly not too strong defensively. And hopefully the fact that they've got a stellar center field uh, tandem is going to mitigate some of the uh, the sloppiness that we're going to see from the corners. I want to move to second base now because that's somewhat the one position that has been kind of unclear. I know a lot of people are waiting for Nick Madrigal to finally arrive, and I feel like he's getting close to that point. Somewhat like with the Cubs with Chris Bryant in 2015, where like they're just going to keep him down in AAA for a little while longer, and then once that service time deadline expires, then they'll bring him up. I mean, is it going to be Lurie Garcia to start at second base? I mean, does Andrew Romine have a chance of making the roster? I mean, what, what do you expect out at second base until Madrigal's ready? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the guys they brought in, Romine included, uh, are, you know, sort of that, uh, and I hate to put it this way, but sort of that catastrophic situation where if a guy does get hurt or a guy just really, really has a terrible spring, that you do have a legitimate major league option. I think Romine is a guy who's ticketed to be that kind of insurance at AAA. The White Sox, like many other teams, do that. They they stock their AAA team, which is really no longer necessarily that last level for the prospects as much as it is that sort of uh, taxi squad for the major league team. So I do think uh, it's Leori Garcia's uh, job to lose. Um, Danny Mendick is another guy who's up with the team and, and had a really nice cup of coffee with them uh, in September last year. And he's a guy who could certainly uh, also make the team uh, along with Garcia. Garcia may be the starter. Mendick is a guy who can play a little bit more of that Swiss Army knife role where he can play even in the outfield and certainly can cover all the infield positions. So both guys, there might be room for both guys on the squad. I think it's Larry's to lose. And Nick, uh, I think whether or not he was going to have a stellar spring or not, I do think service time or otherwise, I think there's still some things they feel he needs to work on improve at Charlotte before he comes up. And it could turn out that, whoops, somebody just happens to have a little bit of a bum elbow uh, around the time their service time expires. And, hey, he gets called up. I'm not sure it's going to necessarily be that obvious unless he really just does go bananas through this last month of spring training and maybe that first month down in Charlotte. Uh, but it seems pretty clear he is ticketed for Chicago at some point this season. And uh, fans are really excited to see him. And I think there's uh, with good reason. Brett, I'm going to ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being not at all, 10 being, oh, my God, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. 
How much more does Tim Anderson need to walk this year? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, when you're put when you're when you're batting 400 with your balls in play like he did last year, uh, I'm not sure you have to walk to the degree that we all think he does. Assuming that the his BABIP was not necessarily all speed driven. Uh, and certainly you do have to factor in his wheels there in terms of beating some some hits out, some balls in play that might have been outs for guys like Jose Abreu or an average major leaguer. I think it'd be good. I think the fact that the lineup's going to be stronger, he may not be the leadoff hitter uh, in every game. By the end of the season, he may not be the leadoff hitter. Uh, that might help him. The fact he's going to have a little more protection. I mean, you're not going to change Tim Anderson. He is a free swinger. He's an aggressive player. That certainly worked for him last year. And even if his Babbitt takes a, a, a huge hit, and it's down, I don't know, 350, 325. That's not necessarily going to kill his batting average. It's not going to kill his on-base percentage. I think the White Sox would love to see him walk more. Um, so personally, I'm at, you know, I'm at the 10 level. I want to see some walks. I want to see some guys with some patience. But at the same time, if that somehow cuts him uh, and, and, and knocks him down to being a 250 hitter who's not going to have some of the swag that he brings to the, the, the field and isn't the leader that he is, well, and I think reluctantly, he's one guy you might be willing to say, all right, Tim, you know, you just, you be you and we'll, we'll take what the results are. Because obviously last year, you're not going to argue with any of those results. No, you don't argue with the results, but I think that in the on-base revolution that we've now found ourselves in, it'd be more hard-pressed to have him at the top of the lineup as opposed to being in like maybe a five or a six hole. But again, I think those are, those are small problems given how successful he was last season and how good he has been in sort of stabilizing this infield for the long term. I want to move to the pitching side of things now because Dallas Keuchel was probably one of the biggest name starting pitchers that they picked up off the free agent market in like like ever. Like I can't remember them actually going out and signing a guy like this. Um, with his extreme ground ball rate and the propensity for balls to fly out of the yard at guaranteed rate, like how big was picking up a guy like him for the environment that the White Sox play in 81 games a year. Oh, it's super huge. I mean, I don't think that's a coincidence that that was a guy the White Sox targeted. Of course, they had been dancing with uh, Zach Wheeler and uh, purportedly had the best offer out to him, and then he sort of backed out because he wanted to stay more East Coast. Um, so maybe even Keiko wasn't their first choice, or maybe he was just the number two choice, and they thought they were going to get both Wheeler and Keiko. But, yeah, he is tailor-made for uh, Sox Park. There's no doubt about it. Uh, his ground ball rate is is terrific i mean it really is off the charts it's uh, among the major league best um and he's going to have to do that because his, his stuff isn't necessarily going to overwhelm he's he's getting up there uh he's going to have to be crafty i think uh, a, a lot of us on staff have already likened or or noticed the eerie resemblance just in terms of really what his comp is at this point a guy who's going to have to be crafty to win a terrific fielder so you know we're you know we're not setting the bar too high for him but we're thinking you know mark burley so uh you know i mean no 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 uh don't get intimidated, Dallas, but, uh, you know, that's what we're looking for from you. But I think he's a guy who really just falls into place as, a, as your number two. The Sox needed to get uh, definitely more left-handed in their rotation, and now they picked up a couple guys, so there's going to be more balance in the rotation. And he's a guy who seems like he's come from the start, um, you know, coming out of what has been a sort of sketchy circumstance uh, with the 2017 Astros. Uh, and really showed some leadership. Um, he said mostly the right things. I think he's really going to he's going to be a really great veteran presence for the rotation as well. I assume that based on his prospect status and how hard he throws, that at some point this year, once he's fully healthy and and worked back into a normal limit, that Michael Kopech will be in this rotation. My question to you is, Brett, who does he replace amongst, let's say, if you have a five of 
Keichel, Giolito, Gonzalez, Cease, and Reynaldo Lopez? Well, you might get sorted out uh, in a couple different ways. First of all, given some of the limitations are going to have, Dylan Cease has not exactly proven himself to be a, uh, well, first of all, his, his health, he's had a little bit of issues with having that durability, and he tends to not go deep into games anyway. Now, I'm sure some of that comes from the White Sox wanting to protect him, but I think it also is a tendency, he, he does run into traffic, he can get hit up sometimes, and, you know, he's a young guy. So the fact that he's on it, he's on a sort you know, a sense of uh, uh, innings limit. Uh, and you've got Kopech, who's definitely going to be on an innings limit. It's not inconceivable the White Sox, uh, depending on where they are in terms of a race, uh, pro or con, they could go to a six-man rotation. I, it wouldn't shock me if they did that at some point when guys were ready, because you've also got Carlos Rodon waiting in the wings. But if it really was going to be, if you're going to, if I'm supposed to answer this question straight, which I'm sure is how you issued the question in the first place, is... I think Renato Lopez is a guy who's on some thin ice. Um, of course, Gio Gonzalez, he's a veteran, so he's gonna they're gonna he's gonna do what they they tell him to do. He's happy to have a major league contract and be dependent on. But in terms of the, like the core guys, uh, Lopez, he's a guy who's been a true enigma. Uh, he's got infectious personality. You know, he wants it. Um, he's got an incredibly live arm. He's got great stuff. We're just wondering now if it might be suited to a one-two inning bullpen role uh, or even potentially one-day closer than it is as a starter. So he's the one guy, I, I guess, if the question is who's hanging in the balance there, I think Lopez is the guy who is most under fire heading into this season. And, uh, you know, obviously if he uh, goes gangbusters and decides to be Lucas Giolito 2019, that's not an issue. And I don't know where they're going to put Michael Kopech. And he might even see some bullpen time to, to stretch him out. But uh, Lopez, I think, is the guy who's in most jeopardy of getting bounced from the rotation. That makes a lot of sense. And for me, like looking at somebody like Lopez, like in 2018, if you'd asked me, well, who's your big bright spot for the future of this rotation? I'm saying Lopez because he was by far the best of their young starters. And then last year it was just one of those, what the heck happened to this guy? And speaking of what the heck happened to this guy, what happened to Carson Fulmer, and does he have any impactful future in the organization? Well, you know, Carson has really struggled to throw strikes, and it's it's it really as simple as that. His stuff is good. His strike stuff is dynamite. It's just he can't, he doesn't have the control he needs to have. He didn't, he didn't have success even at Charlotte last year. He started out, I don't know if he broke camp with the team or not, but he got definitely early reps with the White Sox, got sent back down because he just couldn't hack. Relief or starting. Uh, he's had a couple decent outings here in Cactus League. He is out of options, so he is certainly, just from a pride standpoint, not that the White Sox are going to keep a guy on the 26-man uh, because he was a first-round draft choice and they, they don't just want to dump him, but he certainly, if there's any tie, it's going to go to Carson Fulmer to break camp as uh, as the uh, pos possessing the last arm in the bullpen role. Um, but he's still going to have to earn it because they got a lot of live arms. they got a lot of young guys who want to take that from him. But if he can just have a competent spring... Uh, he's going to get a chance to break camp and pitch in the majors one more time. He's run. I mean, he's 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 at probably life number eight here with the White Sox. He doesn't have a lot of time left, so it is going to have to be a significant turnaround. Because at this point, best case is what he's he's an average major league reliever. That's not exactly something you're going to commit to with a long term deal. So I think his time in Chicago was probably uh, ticking short, no matter what. But the question of whether he even breaks camp with the team really still up. It's in his hands. It's his to lose, um, and the results are mixed so far, but until somebody just reaches out and steals it from him, he's on the 40-man, he's out of options, so I think um, everything sort of signals that he might be that last guy. 
We're talking with Brett Ballantini of Southside Sox in the Southside Hit Pen. Brett, I was going to continue on the reliever side of things, but I just had this thought when you're talking about first-round picks and their future in the organization. With Yasmani Grandal under the contract that he's had and the fact that your backup catcher now is James McCann, an all-star from last year, what is the future going to be for somebody like Zach Collins? Yeah, White Sox, the White Sox have five catchers on their 40-man, and that does not seem to be a tenable position to play, especially when you're not talking about a scrub as your starter, a guy who backed into it. You're talking about a guy you've committed four years to in Grandal, and obviously a guy in McCann who is probably just in Chicago for one more year but is coming off an all-star season, so he's legit. Zach, you know, the White Sox are very fond of, you know— um, of course, you're not going to show your hand, so uh, naturally, your mean Mercedes is a terrific defensive catcher, and of course, Zach Collins is showing real growth as a defensive catcher, but neither one of those guys on the 40-man are long-term legitimate catchers. So it's a fair question to ask what, are, I mean, the good news, because you're catching tandem as Grandal and McCann, there's not going to necessarily be a need for a lot of defensive catching, and you might keep a third catcher on the roster to break camp. But he might not be looked at to really do much catching other than an emergency. And that bodes well for Collins because he can hit. He's still got a lot of, you know, swing. I mean, he's, he's pretty much a three outcomes type of guy. Uh, thankfully, he does walk and get on base well. And his left-handedness will help him. Um, so I think he's got a chance to be a, the bench catcher or a bench catcher breaking camp. But I don't think the White Sox would object in the least if somebody came ringing asking about your mean Mercedes or asking about Zach Collins in a deal because the White Sox just simply are all full up. And the problem is two of their five catchers really can't catch, and that's that's not an ideal position to be in. There were not a ton of expectations on many of these 2019 White Sox, but one guy who really exceeded expectations was Aaron Bummer, and the White Sox rewarded him with effectively paying it forward with what seems like a pretty much of a value contract. Uh, I think it was, what, like five years, $16 million for, for Bummer? Yeah. So what do you see in the value of signing a, a guy like that to effectively a long-term extension, even though it's not a ton of money and before this guy even gets to arbitration? Well, you know, I, I guess it's a... It's a smart gamble by the White Sox. Of course, with pitchers, it's always you know very nerve-wracking. But we're talking about a relatively small amount of money. And in terms of value, I mean, well, we're talking maybe that's two, three war, and you've paid off the contract. Uh, I think Bummer was at, uh, you know, depending on, on, on which metric you use. I mean, he was definitely at least in the one war uh, area last year. There's no reason why they're not going to put – I think the main thing it indicates is they see a future for him beyond – just the spot guy beyond a setup guy. I think he's the inherent, uh, he's the heir apparent closing, and that could happen even early in the season, given some of Alex Colomay's uh, struggles last year. Um, I think that's if you're going to do a little reading of the tea leaves into the contract and making a commitment for a guy who basically is coming off of had a pretty decent 2018, if I recall. Uh, 2017. 2018 was very poor. I think he was even sent down to Charlotte. 2019 obviously was out of sight. Um, you're going to commit to a guy who's had even sort of that wavering type of career. Uh, it's a bold move, but I think it indicates they see a future for him that goes beyond just being a, a really strong setup guy, a guy who can move into closing or sharing closing duties. And it's an interesting and, and sort of curious commitment. It, it was a pretty bold move, but then when you look at the the outlay of years and money, 
you know, even if it completely went south, you know, that's still only so, so poor a pick, uh, you know, given that that's a relatively small outlay of money and they're paying Grandel more just to play one season. So uh, I think what the, the real message to fans is, is that it indicates the bummer is a guy they see long term as playing a role that's even greater than what he's doing. In concluding with the bullpen conversation, I think Colomay is going to be one of your best arms possible. That's why he's the closer. And I thought when they picked him up in 2000 and was it 2018 they picked him up or was it in the middle of last year? I can't remember for some reason. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's what that's what I thought, but I for some reason just could not remember. But he seems like he's solid, set, solidified in that closer role. Your two other setup guys, Kelvin Herrera last year for what his career was in Kansas City prior to joining the White Sox, had by far the worst season of his career. And Steve Ciszek, who's had two solid years with the Cubs, comes off having a combined 150 appearances over his last two seasons. So how big of a bounce back does Herrera need to have to prove his worth? And how do you limit Ciszek's work given how much he was used in the last two years on the north side? Yeah, I mean, the... The North Siders really molested him. There's no doubt about it. He, he got overworked. And, you know, listen, he held up pretty well. I mean, you know, all things told, his his numbers didn't suffer greatly. But clearly you could see there was an uptick in his usage, and that just did not have a great effect on him. And I understand the Cubs may have felt it was a necessity because their bullpen was just set. It was a gasoline fire, no doubt about it. But uh, I think, you know, the answer with C-Shack is, is you just you, you use him the way he's used to being um, employed out there. And that could even be that could even see him getting some some closing opportunities. But you definitely make sure you in your mind have a limits and an innings goal for him that you you make sure to hit and don't push him too far. And the good news is the White Sox do have enough arms, even an underachieving one, as you mentioned last year in Herrera, a guy who was sort of plagued with some some back injury issues. If you look at his pre-injury time and then his so-called post-injury time toward the end of the season you put that sort of half season together and that's a dynamite year and that's what they wanted from and expected from when they signed him uh whether or not he can duplicate that you know he's had a little shaky spring so far but i i would think that if he's healthy he's going to give the he's going to deliver the white Sox the numbers close to what they're expecting whether or not a guy at the age he's at and the condition he's in is going to be able to get all the way back. And especially when you're talking about a back situation, some things that don't necessarily ever clear up, uh, it's still definitely up for question. I, I would tab some of the underachieving last year, though, onto the injury. And if he is healthy, I'm going to go forward with Kelvin as as with a, a level of a pretty decent confidence, especially considering with Cishek in, in the fold and Colome still going into the season as closer. Uh, Herrera doesn't necessarily need to even see action you know pat in the last third of the game he could be even a fifth or sixth inning guy so pakota had the white Sox projected at 83 wins the indians are basically disassembling themselves in front of our eyes the tigers and the royals are nowhere close to competitiveness and the twins are the best team in the division albeit a very flawed team that still picked up uh, a phenomenal offensive asset in Josh Donaldson and a couple of good arms in Rich Hill and Kenta Maeda. So do you think that that 83-win total is accurate, or do you think that there's a chance that the White Sox exceed that and can catch the Twins this season? Uh, I'll say yes to all. the. Uh, I'd say 83 is a fair base. You know, I get all the science behind it. I think it's a fair basement. I think it's very – I think it's an uh, utterly – 
poor season for the White Sox not to reach at least the 80-win threshold. 83 wins seems like a reasonable basement for this team. Uh, I think if anything at all goes right, and of course things can go really wrong, you know, injuries, a lot of stuff that don't even have to necessarily be performance tied. I think if anything goes right, I mean, we're, I think we're easily looking at, and I think if you just look at what the estimated war for the team is, I think that puts them uh, far closer to 90 wins. I think we're looking at an upper 80s wins. I think you combine that with the fact that, as you pointed out, the Cleveland, I can't really consider a, a legit contender despite their pitching because they are, they're so, they're, they seem indifferent to winning the division. So I, I can't really make them my division winner if they don't seem to care about being the division winner. And the Twinkies, I, they don't, they don't scare me. I know they won more than 100. I know, I know they put up great numbers last year. I think they're due to fall to the ground a little bit. That doesn't mean they're not going to win the division, but I see the division winner in the Central maybe being low 90s. In terms of wins, and if it's low 90s in terms of wins, well, that gives the Sox a shot. Uh, you know, head to head, you're going to get a lot of cracks at these guys. They're all going to feast on Detroit and Kansas City, so that that's a wash. Uh, so I think it's not going to take a lot to pull the Twins back to the pack, and then who is rising up in in, in place of them? I like to I like I like the Sox as a second place team, and certainly if you're a second place team, that definitely puts you in range to make some real noise. And if things really fall together of stealing this division. Final question for you, Brett. Rick Renteria, what is the pressure going to be on him entering this season in really the first year in his Sox or Cubs tenure where he's expected to produce more wins? Well, he's been chomping at the bit to, to, to get to be put in that position. He's, I think he's tired of being a rebuilding manager. So I, I think he's, you know, he's lived his managing life for a season like this. Of course, there's pressure. Uh, the White Sox really, 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 really love Rick Renneria. I mean, he got extended. He got a contract extension. They didn't even announce. They're like, Two months later, or a week later, where they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, he's he's his contract is not up this year. No, he's he's got a few more years." They didn't even bother to announce it because they love the guy so much, apparently. Uh, so I think he's got job security. He's really going to have to work his way out of a job, and I'm I'm not really sure I see a path where that could happen. His on-field ma- managerial decisions, you know, can come under fire like any manager's, but they're satisfactory enough. The way he handles his clubhouse is certainly satisfactory, if not if not good. Um, there's a lot of guys like Grandal came to the team in part because he he knew Ricky as bench coach in San Diego. Uh, the fact that he has the bilingual capacity only helps him with this roster. I think he's got a ton of things going for him, including the fact he really has never been given a legitimate chance to win. Now he has a roster where he's expected to be 500 minimum. Uh, of course, it's pressure. It's going to be different. I'm not sure if he's going to know how to drive to the ballpark with that kind of uh, circumstance in front of him and that kind of expectation on him because it's so different than what he's used to in Chicago. But there's nothing that tells me he's not going to be able to execute that. Uh, and I I definitely think he gets to ride out this season. I don't think there's any circumstance where he doesn't make it through this season, even if the team really, uh, really does disappoint. Uh, offseason might be something different, but I think – you know, this is what he's relished. And, uh, you know, you can debate whether or not he deserves this opportunity, but uh, he certainly hasn't done anything that would tell you, oh, man, what what in the world is Rick Renneria doing managing this team? And I think he's grown with the team. The team has grown around him. And now he's got these additions, these imports. And if he is able to work them into the flow in any way at all successfully, I think uh, not only is he, you know, going to survive and thrive in Chicago, but, you know, he really may have a, a much longer tenure than any of us would have ever imagined a year or two ago. 
Brett Ballantini, really appreciate the time. Uh, let everybody know where they can uh, find your work and, and read your work. Well, we've got Southside uh, Sox, which is uh, part of the SB Nation uh, blogs. Uh, very familiar probably to any White Sox fan out there. And the offshoot that I started up uh, mid-season last year that's going into its first full season of coverage is Southside Hip Pen. That's our, our Patreon-driven um, piece. Uh, you know, we do a lot of podcasts there. We do even more coverage at Southside Hip Pen than we're able to do at Southside Sox. But between the two, they combine for a nice little mix of uh I would argue the very best White Sox coverage out there. So please, uh, anybody out there curious, uh, click on and take a look at the stuff we're doing because I think you will be very entertained by it. Brett Ballantini, really appreciate the time. Thank you, sir. Oh, it's been great. Thank you very much. Brett Ballantini of Southside Sox and the Southside Hit Pen. This has been MLB Morning Coffee. Appreciate you listening, and we'll catch you in the AM.